You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello and welcome to Justice is Served here on Black Hollywood Live, where we bring you the latest in trending legal news. My name is Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal defense attorney and your host here today. And I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Jay Christopher Smith. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure <laughs> to be here. Um, and, and the 818, which is usually hard to get to. Um, Chris has been a criminal defense attorney for over 18 years. He has had um, over 65 jury trials. Um, he started out as a public defender for approximately eight years, after which he went on to the California Parole Advocacy Program and then went into pra- private practice in 2008. Um, he has represented some very high-profile clients, amongst them Giovanni Ramirez in connection with the beating of the San Francisco Giants fan at Dodger Stadium, also Howard Stern in connection with conspiracy charges related to the Anna Nicole Smith prescription medication case, as well as rapper T. I think, um, you know, I, I, I admire uh, uh, lawyers who are previously public defenders. Um, some of the best, smartest lawyers I know started out in the public defender's office. And I think it just has a lot to do with the training that you got and, you know, makes for a really hardworking, zealous attorney. So I really admire you for that start. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. So our top stories today, Darren Sharper's global deal settling all rape charges in four states, the latest on the Robert Durst murder case, the shocking bail set for Shook Knight, and Chris Brown is now a free man. So let's get started with our case of the week. Uh, former NFL star Darren Sharper has struck a plea deal to end all rape charges against him in four different states, California, Nevada, Arizona, and uh, Louisiana. The allegations against Sharper were made by women in these various states who had no connection with one another. These women came forward and made this sort of uh, Bill Cosby-ish, for lack of a better description, um, Allegations against him about how they were drugged by um, primarily Ambien, a sleeping drug, and later sexually assaulted or raped by um, Darren Sharper. And, you know, I know two of the defense attorneys very well. Lisa Wayne from Colorado is is my homegirl. Her and I were on the board of uh, the National Association of Criminal Lawyers together. And Lenny Levine specializes in the, these types of offenses. And I know that if this case was triable, they would have definitely marched forward to trial. But I think it was a really bad case for the defense, right, Chris? Well, well, I think it's extremely difficult when you've got four different cases in four different jurisdictions, um, you know, maybe eight different women. Um, I think it's it's an amazing deal for Mr. Sharper, um, and I, I don't know if they if it required some convincing uh, from his attorneys to have him accept this deal, but I think he was looking at like maybe two life counts in, in Louisiana. So and in um, Nevada, I believe was his life okay. count as well. Yeah, yeah. So he was really, really looking at an uphill battle, and I was even 
curious why the district attorney's office or the other prosecuting agencies even gave him this deal. Um, so I imagine there must be some issues with the prosecution's case as well. Right. And in, in California, his exposure was 30 years. He pled to six counts, which carry 20 years. He was sentenced to 20 years. But really, in fact, he's going to do uh, nine, apparently. He has been in custody for a year, so he gets some credits for that. And then also, um, the types of uh, uh, that the statutes to which he pled have to do with rape by drugging, which even though it's a serious offense, it's not a violent offense. So he's not going to do 85% of the time. He's going to do 50% of the time. So really, he's not even going to do the 20. He's going to do nine of the 20. And it runs concurrent to all the other, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, so what do you think is, I think we all as criminal defense lawyers do this where we look for a global settlement whenever our clients are in trouble in more than one jurisdiction. What is the significance of that for the client? Well, the significance of that is is that, hey, the, the client has some reassurance that everything is going to get wrapped up. That when he pleads in California and he decides to then go to Louisiana, it's not going to be very much different than the deal that he got in California. Everything is, is supposed to be together. Mm-hmm. However, there may be some obstacles in terms of the federal case I agree. with the state case. Mm-hmm. Um, and there may be an issue of where he, he may have to spend some time in federal custody first. Uh, otherwise, it could be problematic with the state cases running concurrent with that time. But you do agree that the, the, the reason we do this with uh, these types of cases where clients have different cases in different jurisdictions and we wrap them up, like you said, together, is so that the client ultimately basically shoots however many birds with one stone exactly. and gets a concurrent sentence as opposed to getting the sentence stacked up, right? Exactly. Correct? Okay. Exactly. Because if it was all four consecutive, you know, he's he's looking at over, you know, 36 years or something like that. Right. So. And in this case, they're hoping that he's going to do this time in a federal facility, which I think is a country club compared to um, what my clients tell me it is, uh, it, compared to the local correctional, you know, the CDC type facilities that we have in California. What do you think about the life on probation that is a term of his sentence? Well, you know what? I hadn't quite heard that portion of his disposition, uh-huh. and I'm not sure life on probation. Because if you get a state prison sentence, you go on parole. You go on parole. You mm-hmm. don't go on probation. So mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not certain about that, and I don't know if that, what jurisdiction that is. I don't think it's California because mm-hmm. he's got a state prison sentence. So right. the only thing left would be parole. Um, and on uh, that kind of conviction is, is typically three to five years of parole. Mm-hmm. Um, however, he he's also going to be a lifetime sex registrant for the you know <laughs> that will forever haunt him unless there's some change in the legislation. I always say that's a life sentence. Yes. It's very very hard to get around, short of you know um, lewd conduct in public, which is like basically pulling down your pants, you know, on Santa Monica Boulevard or something. Everything else is registrable under Section 290 of the Penal Code, and it's it's really like carrying the scarlet letter A on your chest for the rest of your life. So it is a it is a pretty hard thing for most people. Um, and what about, Chris, the no contest plea? Because there was um, great coverage of Judge Pastor saying this is a no contest plea, but it has the same effect as a guilty plea. What can you tell our viewers about that? Now, folks typically enter into a no contest plea. In essence, they're saying, hey, I'm not going to contest the charges against me. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily admitting or saying I'm guilty, but I'm not going to contest the charges. And I think um, I'm going to take this deal. He also did something what they call a People v. West uh, plea. Right. And folks take those kind of pleas when they're saying that, hey, 
I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm necessarily guilty of this or I did this, but I think it's in my best interest to take this deal because of, you know, there may be certain things going on, the, the, the stakes of going to trial and potentially losing or just other issues in, in Mr. Sharper's life. But it still will go on his criminal record and stay there, right? As the judge indicated, he, he is treating the no contest plea to have the same effect as a guilty plea. So mm-hmm. in all other instances he will suffer the same repercussions as if he had pled guilty. Right. Okay, moving on to our docket cases. Robert Durst still awaits extradition to California as he's held in uh, New Orleans for charges of of possession of drugs and weapons, a felon with a weapon. Um, But he recently had a detention hearing, I should say a failed detention hearing, because he got no bail. Um, The prosecutors successfully argued that he is a flight risk. Amongst the facts that were brought to the court's attention were primarily the items found in a his hotel room after his hotel room was searched at the Marriott in New Orleans, um, which is, you know, after he was arrested there last Saturday, a week ago Saturday. So these are some of the things they found. First of all, he had checked in under a fake name, under an alias. He had a fake ID. He had a valid passport passport and birth certificate, several bags of clothes, $45,000 in cash, a revolver and marijuana, um, a brand new cell phone. In fact, his cell phone that uh, the, the detectives were tracking at some point went off the radar and he was he was caught with a brand new cell phone in his hotel room. He was expecting to receive $117,000 in a UPS box. They actually found a, a tracking number, intercepted the package and that cash was sure enough in that box. Map of Cuba and Florida. Those are some nice destinations. Um, A flesh-toned latex mask and... All this aside, they argued that he's an extremely wealthy man. He's worth like $100 million um, as his net worth. Uh, and he has a history of flight. Let's go back to 2000 when he was looked at for the execution of Susan Berman. That's the case that he's awaiting extradition on. And suddenly he's in Texas. And several months after that, within a year from her death, um, he's looked at in Texas for the murder of his neighbor. That's the case that he was actually acquitted on. And boom, he's in Pennsylvania caught shoplifting. But for that shoplifting arrest, he would have never been been brought to justice in Texas. So he's kind of known for leaving and skipping town the minute he realizes that he's being looked at for something. Um, What are your thoughts, Chris? Um, Is this a surprise to you that he's deemed a flight risk and held on no bail? Well, initially, I was like, you know, not necessarily can you consider him a flight risk, but after hearing the litany of things that they found in right. the room, you know, uh, he, he's in the hotel under an assumed name. I wasn't necessarily bothered by that because I thought, well, maybe he's trying to avoid the publicity from the show. So right. you, you go in under mm-hmm. assumed name. Um, but but the money, I think they had been tracking him. I think he had been withdrawing like $9,000 every week consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the mass, the, the, the maps to Cuba, things of that nature. I, I hear Cuba is opening up for Americans to be able to travel there. So maybe that's what his argument is. He just wanted to go check it out. Um, but I think the, the prosecution was able to successfully lay out the reasons why, uh, Mr. Durst may not be around come time if there's charges brought against him. And even in his interview on mm-hmm. the jinx, he, he makes a statement that, 
something to the effect that, hey, if I was being charged with murder, or, or who wouldn't skip town if they had $250 million or $250,000? Who wouldn't skip town? So I think his own words are coming back to, to impact him. Yes. Right, right. Yes. And he has more than $250,000. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. all the worse for him. Also um, on Mr. Durst, the FBI is asking detectives across the nation to go back and dust off their cold cases to see if they can possibly link them to Durst. Uh, of course, the defense attorneys are saying, oh, this is BS. It's because their case is so weak that they're now scrambling and reaching out to these other unsolved mysteries, so to speak. Um, and, you know, what do you think about this, Chris? Because I think they don't need, I mean, th- th- these other uh, cold cases are not going to be admissible to prove that he was the one that, uh, you know, shot and killed Susan Berman. Um, I just think that, you know, they're doing this. Why not? I mean, he's in custody. Let's find everything else that he's possibly done, right? Well, well, absolutely. I mean, I think there's one of the investigations is is that there was a young lady who had went to a store that Durst had owned. And after leaving that store, came up and disappeared. Mm-hmm. They couldn't locate her and they haven't located her for years. So because he's got this trail of is bodies. Is this the one in Vermont? I think so. Yes, right, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a trail of bodies leading to Durst. So they're thinking, well, hey, maybe there's some connection. But um, I don't think... Think they've been able to kind of piece anything together to say that Durst had ever even had contact with this woman. And it's not going to have any evidentiary impact in the Berman murder, correct? Probably not, yeah. but I know I know not well the DA in California mm. who's going to be prosecuting oh, John, John Lewin. Yes. He is an excellent prosecutor. He is a mm-hmm. thorough prosecutor, and I, I can guarantee you that things that are happening are, are happening for a reason. And so yeah. if there's a, an ability for him to try to bring something in as a prior bad act or, or whatever, he's going to try to use it. Mm-hmm. And he's also the kind of prosecutor, because he specializes in these cold cases, he works with literally two pieces of evidence. He, go, he, he goes to trial with tons of experts on on one or two pieces of evidence, and he gets these convictions. Yes. He's pretty incredible, I have to say. Yes. Um, there's also a, a girl in Eureka where Durst had been at some point in time around the time of uh, Berman's death, and this girl went missing, and there's a composite sketch of the driver of the car in which she was in, last seen in, and that, that person apparently looks remarkably like Durst. So they're looking at him in Northern California as well. Last on the Durst case, um, and this really pisses me off. I, I don't know how you you feel about it, but um, an L.A. prosecutor, and I don't know if it's John Lewin, but some prosecutor from L.A. was in New Orleans speaking to Mr. Durst for three hours while his attorney, Mr. DeGaron, was on his way from Texas to New Orleans. Mr. DeGaron says that he had already called and told the warden wherever uh, uh, Durst was being held, hey, I'm on my way. Clear the visits with me before you let anyone see my client. And he arrives, and the prosecutor's already spoken to him for three hours. I'm sorry, but they're not talking about the beignets at Cafe du Monde and they're not talking about the jazz scene on Bourbon Street. So what are they talking about? How do you handle that situation? Because I know it's happened to you. Well, I, yes, it has. And uh, I, I think it was John Lewin. That's the reports that I heard that who, mm. who went out there. But I have the suspicion that perhaps the DAs from L.A. interviewed Durst because he didn't exercise. He didn't say, hey, I want my attorney here. And actually, it's the client who has to say, I want the attorney here, not not the client's attorney. Mm-hmm. So even though Durst's attorney may have called and said, hey, clear any you know visitors with Durst with me, I think Lewin's interpretation or whoever the DA's interpretation was, well, it's Durst who has to say, hey, 
you know, I want my lawyer to be present during this interview. I know that that that's a that's the constitutional argument right. that that it's his right under the Fifth Amendment and he has the he's the right holder. He has to invoke the right. But I think from an ethical standpoint, it's really dirty when they do that, knowing that you're on your way. Well, the, <laughs> the other thing, too, is, is that because of who Durst is, I yeah. mean, this guy may be mildly autistic. Mm-hmm. And so. What I mean was that really knowingly and voluntarily done the the conversation that he had with the DA. So I think that Durst's attorneys are going to be attacking on all the Absolutely. fronts. Absolutely, they're going to be saying, "Hey, he had counsel. You right. shouldn't have spoke to him. Hey, this guy is uh, mildly autistic, mm-hmm. and you know you guys should have taken greater steps to make sure that he was actually doing this voluntarily and of his own free mm-hmm. will." So they may get some traction. He does. I mean, one of his biggest problems, Durst, I'm sure had, is that he loves to talk. Obviously, he sought out Jarecki for the jinx. Yes. He wanted to uh, these series to be done on him, and uh, and. And he talks to himself, obviously, we know that. And I think he did it against the advice of his counsel. He did, exactly, yeah, I read that too. All right, next, speaking on the topic of bail, Suge Knight's bail has been ordered to be set at $25 million. His response, bam, he collapses in court, wouldn't you? Who wouldn't? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not that many people can afford to post $25 $25 million worth of collateral with a 10% premium to the bail bond agent. I mean, this is, 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 is really, um, extraordinary to me. It might but, as well have been no bail. Exactly. It, it's, <laughs> so. it's really the equivalent of no bail. I agree yeah. with you. And, um, the prosecutor though comes in with 300 pages. Some of it, you know, his, his rap sheet and his, his, you know, um, the troubles for which he was actually convicted. But a lot of it are simply allegations. They're just uncharged. Uh, conduct essentially saying that he's involved in extorting rappers with tax money, that he's done assaults and batteries that he's just been under the radar for, um, money laundering to the tune of like millions of dollars. Um, obviously it's kosher, but what are your thoughts on this? That a DA can just come in with anything and everything to get <laughs> essentially no bail. <laughs> I think the DA's office wanted to send a clear message to Suge Knight is that we have no intentions of of releasing you. We don't want you to see you on the streets ever at any point mm-hmm. ever again. They, they're they expecting to get a conviction on this case, and they want to make sure that he's not going to be impacting anyone or any witness out there who could offer some information as to help them in the prosecution of their case. And it is kind of difficult as a defense attorney to get up there to combat allegations because right. allegations aren't facts necessarily right. d- that have been proven. And and especially someone like Shook who has a lot of enemies out there. Yes. I mean, people could be saying anything about him and it could be not true because they don't like him because some record deal they had went bad. You know? Absolutely. Uh So anyway, a preliminary hearing is set for April and more shall be revealed and we'll of course report back to you. Um, next on the docket, the uh, some officials within the LAPD are under the gun by an internal investigation being conducted by the LAPD itself, as well as the uh, police commission, which is a body of civilians that oversees the um, 
activities of the Los Angeles Police Department. This has to do with the misuse of resources to the tune of $22,000 of taxpayer money that was used to showcase the ex-con, uh, ex-Mexican mafia killer, uh, Rene Boxer Enriquez. Back in January, he was flown by helicopter to downtown Los Angeles. That's money. Um, with a lot of SWATs um, in this area where he was basically showcased. And this event was, was um, quote-unquote, sold to Chief Beck to get approval for the money as a training event for law enforcement officials. However, only 14 were in, in attendance. The remaining 150 guests were business leaders in the community. As it turns out, these business leaders had gone to the LAPD and said, we're really intrigued by this guy. We want to get to know this guy. We want him to sign his book for us, and we want to meet him. Can you arrange this? And what do they do? They lie to the chief. They get permission to use $22,000. They go up to the facility where he's housed, and they talk to him. This is all money. They're getting paid to drive up there. I don't know where he's housed. but And then helicopter ride, the SWATs. He's dressed in this sharp business suit. The, the curtain goes up. It's very theatrical. To me, it sounds like a book signing buffet dinner, really, because then, you know, these guests get to go up to him in pairs, shake his hand, get the book signed. You know, it's this whole thing. And it's really all about him, who he is, uh, you know, how the Mexican mafia works, and um, nothing at all like what they said it was going to be. And, Chris, what they did was they used an old expired court order where it was supposed to be for Enriquez to be, uh, you know, he's a snitch. He's a professional snitch. So he was supposed to be brought in to court to testify. That's what that order was for. Not to not to pull him out for a dinner. Okay. So my question to you is, is what do you think are the consequences that we can expect at this, at the close of this investigation? Just a <laughs> slap on the hand or? Well, well, I mean, these are our tax dollars. And so when we see our tax dollars used in such a way, you know, Beck is saying, hey, I was misled. They told me that this was going to be a, a, basically a law enforcement training session. And as you pointed out, Sarah, there were, there were only maybe 14, 14 uh, high ranking right. police officials at the event. Um, and so now there's this internal investigation mm -hmm. that's going on, and it's now a personnel matter. And that's why Beck is now can say, hey, I can't talk about th this in great detail because the lieutenant who set everything up, his lawyer sent Beck a letter saying, hey, this is a personnel matter, so you, you shouldn't be talking about this publicly. Mm -hmm. And so now Beck can fall back on that and say, I, I can't go into the details. Mm -hmm. But I think there's definitely going to be some fallout. I don't think that any officers have been you know, placed on leave or anything of that nature, but I think definitely there's got to have to be some consequences. It's received too much media attention. Um, these are our tax dollars that are going out for an event that probably would have never been approved. And if it's true that this writ was expired, um, that is extremely problematic. It's, yeah, it's extremely. completely unethical. It's, yes. it's like fraud. Uh, but, and on the, I was saying we're going to talk about parole. What triggered the attention on this event was because around that time, Governor Jerry Brown had denied parole to this guy. This guy had the, excuse me, balls to uh, to seek parole. <laughs> He's serving two life sentences, and the parole board recommended parole, but Governor Brown, I think, very appropriately denied it. Um, so anyway, that's how this this whole thing was uh, came to light. Um, 
some good news. Chris Brown is now a free man and that his probation has officially ended. Um, and, you know, in the photo that you're going to see, he looks completely stoked in court. Uh, he was placed on probation in 2009 following the domestic violence incident involving Rihanna. And although the felony probation in, in L.A. County is is uh, is five years, um, he ended up on probation for six years. And I want to talk to you, Chris, about how that may have came come about. Well, apparently, you know, Chris had some missteps. There was mm-hmm. some issues about whether or not he was legitimately completing the community service. Right. Uh, he had another incident, I think, in New York where he hit some guy. D.C. last year. Was it yeah, D.C.? Yeah. Okay, yeah, last D.C. Year. Uh, there was an, an incident at the rehab place where I think he got kicked out. Uh, I don't know if he threw anything at somebody or got upset with his mother or whatnot. So, and at some point, Judge Bramlin took him into custody for two months because they were determining or trying to determine whether or not he was going to revoke his probation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what extended the, the five years to six years because mm-hmm. he had all of these missteps. Right. I think uh, when you uh, when you violate your probation and he had several, like uh, like Chris said, um, you are then if your probation is revoked, then that tolls the probation period until your probation is reinstated. I actually did talk to his lawyer because he's my uh, office landlord, Mark Garagos, and he said, in fact, that the the probation was never extended because sometimes the court extends probation so that the person has enough time to comply with the terms. But in his case, I think it was just that Toll. all these violations kept tolling the probation. Anyway, congratulations to Chris Brown, who yes. can now go and visit his uh, little baby royalty in Texas without having to check in with his probation officer. Um, and last on the docket, a, a lawsuit has been filed last week by Brian Kapachak on behalf of four plaintiffs claiming that 30 wine brands and approximately 81 different types of wine in California um, carry very toxic levels of arsenic. And this is a chemical that occurs in minerals and, and it's in the environment. But apparently what, what the lawsuit is alleging is that it, it, it's in very, um, it's found in very high toxic levels in these California wines. Amongst them are, um, I think it's Behringer, uh, Char- Carl Shaw, Fetzer, Foxhorn, Corbell. These are like $10 table wines that most of us can, you know, get and enjoy with dinner on a, on a daily basis, you know, from Trader Joe's. And so I would say stay with the Chateau blah, blah for a while until this lawsuit is, is settled. Um, Chris, there's no dollar amount in this lawsuit. Do we know what these plaintiffs are, are claiming as damages? Well, well, right now they're unspecified. However, we know that basically there was some test that was mm-hmm. that was being conducted on wines, and the research had revealed that the cheaper the wine, the higher the um, carcinogen mm-hmm. in 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 the wine. So they were like, "Wait a minute! This this exceeds federal levels. Mm-hmm. How come there's no disclosure to the consumer? You know, we don't know." how many people this has actually impacted. And so at some point after this study came back, they decided to file this lawsuit on behalf of the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it'll have traction, we will see. Uh, it's still not clear where the substance is coming from. Is it because of the pesticides? Or are they using some other kind of chemical agent mm-hmm. to help the wine crystallize better or something of that nature? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we won't know a lot about these so-called damages until much later in this litigation. Yeah, because uh, what they're claiming is that um, it can cause cancer, liver, and kidney damage. Um, and then, of course, the wine advocate advocate groups are coming back and saying this is 
frivolous that, in fact, there is no U.S. standard for how much there should be in a wine. And even if there was, the levels found in California wines are remotely like so far away from what, let's say, Canadian wines um, have. But anyway, we'll we'll know more about this and report back as well. Um, last on our list today on Justice is Served, we're going to tip the scales today um, talking about whether young murderers serving a life sentence without parole should be treated uh, differently and, in fact, given a chance on parole. The Supreme Court will actually be hearing a case um, with this issue in the fall. And what triggers this this um, this Supreme Court case is, is, is about a Louisiana man who was 17 back in 1968. So he was a juvenile and he was convicted of murder and he was placed on life without parole. And now he's 68 years old and uh, he wants to see the light of day. Right. And, you know, the trend with the high, high court has been pro-juveniles. Um, they've struck down the death penalty for juveniles. They have, in fact, said that um, you cannot get life in prison without parole sentences on crimes like robbery and assault. And more on point with this case, there's no automatic imposition of a life term uh, without parole for murder if the defendant was a minor. So the question really then becomes really specific. Is this going to be retroactive to cases like this man's case that were um, that came about prior to when this law was promulgated? So, Chris, um, you've had a lot of juvenile experience as well when you were in the public defender's right. office. Um, do you think the court should apply this decision retroact- retroactively? And if it does, what would be the outcome that we would expect? Well, actually, before I came here today, I just came back from a juvenile camp ah. on my way here. Um, and, and one of my clients is actually in this group because I think in 2012 there was maybe uh, 309 juveniles who were convicted of, you know, murder who got sentenced to, you know, life without parole. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is going to get some traction because we know now in the, in the latest research that ju- the juvenile mind is not developed like an adult, mm-hmm. that impulse um, reactions are are different and over time um, you know as you become an adult you become more responsible and you you understand your actions at a greater point so because of this research and this development I think that retroactively it should apply because if this these kids were you know 13 14 15 or when this when these Mm -hmm, homicides mm -hmm. occurred they didn't have the ability to really deal with certain situations even though it's a heinous crime and i understand right. it and there's victims involved and, and and i get that too but at some point we're just warehousing these people you know at some point this guy is 68 years old if he's had an unremarkable um record while being incarcerated where he's you know tried to rehabilitate mm-hmm. himself what true danger to the public is he and i think that's the question that we have to ask and that's mm-hmm. the analysis that parole boards will do is the person a current danger to the public and that's how i think we need to look at these cases i agree with you and i think that you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander the law sets the the legal age is 18 and uh you know ha- we treat minors uh victims minor victims for instance in sex crimes um a lot different than we do 
the adult victim. And I think the same should apply when you're dealing with the defendant. I think what's fair is fair. Um, and so we're curious to know what our audience thinks of this. So please tweet us. We'd like to know whether you believe that murderers convicted when under the age of 18 should be given a chance on parole, even if they were sentenced to life without parole. So please tweet us. You can tweet me. My handle is at Azari Law. And Chris can be tweeted at J.C. Smith Law. Um, and this brings us to the close of of our uh, of our of our um, edition today, I want to thank Chris again for joining me. I had a great great oh, time. Um, thank you for the invite. Discussing <laughs> discussing these cases with you. I hope that you come back and join us again. And I want to thank um, all our viewers for for tuning in. Please keep the dialogue going during the week. You can find us on YouTube and iTunes, and please like us and post your comments and your feedback as well. We'd love to hear from you, and we will see you next week right here on Justice Is Served. Bye, everyone. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host owner and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.